The Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group is an award-winning team with hundreds of successful transactions under their belt. Through their national network, the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group works hard to help families realize the dream of home ownership. As a community advocate, Cynthia Joyner is proud to be the presenting sponsor of Jazz in the Park Huntsville. You can find the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group on the web at CynthiaJoyner.com. Jazz. 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 Jazz with Kenny Anderson. Welcome to this bonus episode of Jazz with Kenny Anderson. Uh, as you can tell, I am not Kenny Anderson. I am David Person, uh, the producer of Jazz with Kenny Anderson. But every so often, we'll do these bonus episodes. And I am honored that the first bonus episode that we're doing is with uh, a gentleman who has performed on at least 4,000 studio projects as one of the premier session bass players in Los Angeles for probably, I'm guessing, about 40 to 50 years. His name is Abraham Laboriel. Now he's laughing. You're laughing because I said 40 to 50 years. Is that why you're laughing, Abraham? Uh, it's a commitment. <laughs> <laughs> it is a commitment, uh, but it's also, it's also, uh, longevity is also, I think, a measure not only of commitment, but also of ability. And clearly you have been a staple uh, of uh, in the Los Angeles studio scene, but also in the music industry as a whole, because you've played with everybody from Henry Mancini to Quincy Jones, Michael Jackson. Uh, the list is the list is endless. Uh, Steely Dan. I mean, I've seen uh, just a, a wide range of names of people that you've played with and uh, whose work you've enhanced. So I want to welcome you to Jazz with Kenny Anderson. Pleasure. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys and uh, my love and my blessings to everyone that's listening. Beautiful. Uh, for for those who don't know about your background, let's start there. Uh, you were born in Mexico, correct? Mexico City, Mexico, correct. Mexico City, Mexico. And I would assume that 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 uh, beginning of your life has played a tremendous role in shaping your approach to music. Is that correct? That's very correct. Um, my father was a musician, very gifted uh, guitarist, singer, songwriter, actor. And um, so he passed on to the whole family. You know, we were four brothers, you know, and two two brothers and two sisters. My mom was not officially a musician, but she was very musical. And uh, so the family, there was music all the time. And uh, my father was a founding member of the Musicians Association and Actors Association, Composers Association and Film Workers Association in Mexico because he moved to Mexico from Honduras in the 1920s. 
So he was there at the beginning of the whole industry in Mexico and became a very important part of it. Per participated in over 200 films. And uh, my father is considered an integral part of the Mexican artistic life. Then my older brother was the number one rock and roll singer uh, as of the 60s. And then my older sister was a number one. She was voted the best dressed pop singer in Mexico. And my younger sister was also an amazing uh, actress, musician. So my older brother and my younger sister both died. Uh, but music was always in our lives. And so Mexico and Mexican ways of uh, thinking, making music and feeling it, combined with my parents' Honduranian heritage, uh, informed who I am. By the way, we belong to a culture called Garifuna. I don't know if you heard of it. Yes, but please explain. So the word Garifuna means Black Caribbean. And so my parents were raised as part of that tradition in Honduras. And that the, the Garifunas were people that left West Africa, but when they got to American, to America, the the ship sank, and uh, they never lived as slaves. They mixed with the Arawak Indians in the isle, island of San Vicente, across Venezuela, and so this language and traditions from the 1600s to this day remains. And uh, I did not know anything about it until I was around nine years old. I, I got up to go to drink some water and my parents were talking with a cousin in a very, in a very unusual language. And I asked what's going on and they revealed the whole Garifuna thing to me. And it is very powerful. Indeed, indeed. Uh, you have been described in the press as an Afro-Mexican. Do you embrace that description as well? As well, yes. Because um, uh, we've been, I mean, I was born and raised there. And uh, at the time that I was living in Mexico, right up until 1968, there were um, maybe a hundred black people uh, that had been born and raised in Mexico. And now they've discovered, uh, thank God the government finally uh, evolved. <laughs> mm. And they uh, officially recognized what they call the third root of Mexican ethnicity as being the black people. And uh, so now there's uh, tens of thousands all over the, the country. Another very beautiful thing about the history of the blacks in Mexico, uh, my father as an actor was able to portray this story. A man named Yanga, Y-A-N-G-A, also from West Africa, who was captured to be brought as a slave. But King Yanga was very intelligent. He knew that uh, the slave traders were always separating people by language. So he instructed all of the members of his tribe to pretend not to understand each other. Mm. And they brought him together. So when they landed in Mexico, they uh, organized a liberation. And there is now, a, there's, there's a town in Veracruz with the name of Yanga. And it was the first time that a, a whole tribe intact took over 
Mexico, you know. Okay. Okay. Uh, just so people will know, uh, you're, you refer to your older brother. His name is Johnny. Is that correct? correct? Yes. Johnny Laborio. Yes. Uh, your father was Juan Jose Laborio. Right. Okay. And uh, what, what was your mother's name? Francisca. Francisca. Yes, Francisca Lopez. Okay. Francisca Lopez. So you left uh, Mexico City in 1968, and you came to the United States. Is that correct? Right. And was that to attend Berkeley? Ultimately, yes. Um, I had a scholarship to go to the Boston Conservatory. You know, my life is a series of miracles. Um, I was going to be an aeronautical engineer in Mexico because I always liked to read and study. And my parents did not trust the music industry, so they did not want me to do that first. They said, get your degree, and then you can always have music as something that you do, but don't rely on music. So I, I trusted that. And after two years of engineering, it became too hard because I did not have the gift to be an engineer. So I begged my parents to let me try music. And if it didn't work, I would go back to engineering. And uh, the rest is history. My, my aeronautical teachers, they said to me that it was so good to see me leave because otherwise the world would never be overpopulated if I had become better. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I came to, I started to visit different embassies. The music school in Mexico wanted 11 years to give me a degree of composition. So I started to visit different embassies to see if anybody was offering a degree that was faster. And the United States were offering a four-year four degree. So I applied to the Boston Conservatory. They accepted me. But when I did my audition, thank God I ran into this teacher who said, you know, Abraham, you are not good material for the Boston Conservatory because the only modern music that we teach is Stockhausen and Schoenberg, you know, and uh, you don't seem that kind of a person, but around the corner, we have Berkeley. Let me make an appointment for you, and if you don't like it, you can always come back, but Berkeley doesn't have a, a scholarship because they are not accredited. So I went to Berkeley, and believe it or not, the first thing that the teacher in Berkeley placed for me for my interview is uh, Quincy Jones' compositions when he was a student. Mm. And I just, you know, I, I just was, I knew I was in the right place. And so um, I got my degree from Berkeley after four years in composition. And both of my children also ha got their degrees from Berkeley. Uh, one, you know, 20 years later, the other one 30 years later. And then Berkeley gave us a very special award called the First Family of Berkeley because all three of us graduated, you know. Right. And this would be a good time, I think, to to explain to people uh, just who your children are. Your 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 I believe your oldest son is uh, Abraham Laboriel Jr. Right? right? Yes, and and Abraham Laboriel Jr. Uh, is known around the world as the drummer for Paul McCartney. Yes, for the last nineteen years. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
And he plays those drums. I've seen footage of him playing the drums. He plays with a lot of enthusiasm and uh, has a distinct style that has yeah. obviously been effective for uh, the, the world's most famous Beatles. So that's, that's pretty amazing. And then your other son, Matteo, is known as a film composer and a producer, correct? Correct. Guitarist, arranger, and uh, he has a degree on um, music production and engineering from Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's just been very, very gifted with the amazing sensitivity for detail. And, uh, and the doors are opening every day more and more, you know. Sure. So when you, let, let's go back for a minute. When you left Mexico in 1968, you already had decided on a course for your life. You, you, you knew you were going to pursue music professionally. So I'm assuming that you already had developed your skill as a bass player, or was it as a guitarist first? At, at the time, strictly as a guitarist, as a rhythm guitarist. Okay. When I was six years old, my father got me started to play guitar, classical guitar, but uh, I did not, I was missing the, the tip of my index finger on my left hand, which is the one for the two finger, all the chords. Well, mm -hmm. so, uh, he taught me with the remainder, three fingers, and it became particularly difficult after two years. Um, I lost the tip because of being very mischievous and playing with my mother's washing machine when I was four years old. Oh, wow. Um, the fan of the motor cut the tip, and uh, I did not realize that eventually it was going to become a, a blessing because uh, the, the my father's guitar t uh, classes and the approach that I used to the guitar I was able to transfer to the electric bass. So that uh, uh, it is a distinct style. And uh, and then with my right hand, I, I use all five fingers as opposed to just more of a traditional classical guitar approach. And um, it is fantastic because you see, in the United States, uh, since I was a candidate for the degree program, in those days, the National Board of Education did not recognize the electric bass as a real instrument because there was no classical literature for it. So I had to get my degree as a guitarist, but when I discovered that I could play the electric bass, the teachers allowed me to have all my ensemble work on bass beginning in 1971. So the last two years of Berkeley, I was strictly a bass player reading uh, bass clef and playing all the ensembles. And that just changed my life forever because overnight all the doors became open because I understood the difference between a guitar and a bass, which uh, is rare because many guitarists uh, don't. When they play uh, bass, they think that it's still a guitar and they forget to function as bass players. <laughs> And uh, the worst thing that you can ever say to a bass player is, it looks like you and I need a bass player. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, you, you left Mexico with this real clear understanding uh, of, uh, of, of, 
of what you wanted to do, that you wanted to be a guitarist, but then you became a bass player. Why did you switch to the bass? Because um, well, I have to tell you, the bands that I had in Mexico, I was the guitarist, but also I was responsible for teaching the bass player his parts. And uh, and during that period, uh, James Jamerson appeared. And I said to myself, this is ridiculous. You know, what what a joy to be able to do that to a song. And um, you see, my brother, because of his success, all the American publishing companies were sending him records to consider recording them in, in Spanish. And the ones that he didn't like, he would give to me. So then I found myself playing by ear with all types of American music, not realizing that someday I was going to move to the United States. So I had a very deep understanding of American music in a way that most Mexican children would would never have an opportunity to develop, you know. So uh, when I listen, uh, I was born to love her or made to love her with Stevie Wonder, that bass line just, I said to myself, this is it, you know, whoever that is, <laughs> the world has changed forever. And then one day, um, in the, um, this is special, a friend of mine, one of my classmates, uh, had a death in the family, and he asked me if I could sub for him playing bass. And I said, sure, I, I, I'll do it. So he gave me his bass and his amp, and I went to do the job. And the band leader says to me, do you know um, Sweet Lorraine? And I said, absolutely, because since a childhood, I was listening to all this American music, you know. Right. And he says, wow, you know, none of the Berkeley students know Sweet Lorraine. You're the first one. So let's play it. And we played it, and he fell in love. And so from that day on, he, I had steady work every weekend for all the parties and social events, you know. And this is Sweet Lorraine, the, the, the hit that Nat Cole had back in the uh, 50s, I guess? Exactly. Okay. And, uh, and it's interesting because even today, uh, you know, nobody really is familiar with that song except the seasoned jazz players, you know, and uh, this guy was just so happy that I knew it, and he actually was testing me to see if I was just jiving him or not, and I was in heaven playing, but also I was playing bass, and the way I was approaching the bass was like a real bass player, so uh, the doors opened forever, you know.
That was the group Koinonia from the album Pilgrim's Progression, the best of Koinonia. The song is titled, Goodbye Means God Be With You. Koinonia is the super group that Abraham Laboriel played bass with and helped to found. And now back to my interview with Abraham Laboriel. Your sound is, uh, is, is, is very distinctive, and I, I want to see if we can hone in on that for a minute. Um, I, I, as I have listened to you over the past four or so decades that I've been aware of you, uh, it, it seems to me that your sound is very, it's percussive and melodic, uh, but it with a very but with very clean lines. That's that's something that I think is unique about your particular approach to bass playing. Not a lot of sustained notes, at least in my opinion, mm-hmm. uh, as a layperson. I hear a lot of precision, and and also a very adroit use of spacing and timing. And I wonder, and, and it seems to me that it's it's different from what I hear from other bass players, who are yeah, also who are also very, good, but it's different. You agree with that? You're very articulate. You are really capturing in words the way I think and the way I feel. Um, the reason for that is that, uh, well, this is a confirmation of my beliefs. The very first time I met Chuck Rainey. He says to me, Abraham, I don't want you to feel burdened. And I don't even know why he talked to me that way, but you know, we were just meeting in this studio. I was arriving, he was leaving, and he says, I need to tell you something. I don't want you to feel burdened, but the bass player is the house where all the musicians and singers find refuge. And if you forgot to function as a bass player, you are leaving everybody homeless. And he left, you know. So I took that function very, very seriously. That uh, play the bass, provide with the bass the fun- the foundation, the, the the sound that makes everything fall into place. You know? And uh, and yet the the reason why some the sustain everything has rhythmic implications, you know. So that when you stop the string and when you start it, it's part of the feel of the music. And to me, that's very, very important. The placement of the notes in relationship to everything that's going on. And some of that, I'm going to drop more names. I learned from Steve Gadd. Steve Gadd says Mm. to me, you know, I don't think as a drummer and I don't listen to the drum part. I listen to the music. And if I feel something is lacking, then I make adjustments to see if I can get back the musicality. Since you're dropping names, who are you? You've already mentioned James Jamerson as an influence and you referenced Chuck Rainey, who I'm assuming you at least respect, even if you, if you don't see him as an influence, but who, who would you say in addition to James Jamerson is an influence on you as a bass player? Well, primarily uh, upright players because uh, my first, Listening, my the first time I listened to music profoundly were jazz players, you know, uh, Wilbur Ware, uh, Ray Brown, 
Ron Carter, Richard Davis. Uh, one of my classmates in Berkeley was um, George Moraz. And so, uh, you know, Chuck Rainey has an expression that, that he says, dropping the biscuits. <laughs> mm. and, uh, and to me, that's Chuck's approach to trying to sound like, uh, like an upright player, you know. Uh, you know. And he says, when you have biscuits that are really hot, and you're trying to get them out, you know, <laughs> with that kind of a sound, you know, so... And so doing that uh, is part of the, what it informs how music should feel. Um, and then the, I don't know if you remember in the fifties when music went from swing to straight eights, a lot of the top jazz musicians in New York found it very, very hard to make the adjustment. And many of them had to kind of quit because mm. uh, the difference between three, four, uh, 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 you, know, you know, the Elvis Presley, the little richer approach, you know, and that difference, many of them just could not go back and forth. And so they couldn't get as much work. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. Feel, you know, it's all about the feel and how the audience relates to that feel, you know. Yes, yes. Uh, you mentioned upright bass players. And uh, and so that, of course, strongly suggests jazz. You went to Berkeley, which was, of course, is famous for producing the top names in jazz you know, as vocalists, instrumentalists, producers, composers, uh, do you consider yourself, and I, I know you've done an abundant, an abundance of work in the jazz genre, but you've also done a lot of work in pop. You've done a lot of work in gospel. So do you consider yourself fundamentally a jazz musician or do you consider yourself someone who just transcends genre? Yeah, I, I, the best way to put it is I am someone that loves music with okay. all. And um, no matter what style it is, I try to invest and impart my whole being. Um, because um, as a believer, the idea that the Lord could return anytime, I want him finding, I want him to find me doing something with my whole heart. Mm -hmm. I'm not just waiting for, oh, this is important, this I really like, this I don't like, this is uh, my favorite, you know. And many times uh, through the years, people compliment me saying, man, you know, we don't like to call you the music is simple because we know that you're a virtuoso. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> call me. <laughs> and then they said, you know, we could never believe that you would play something this simple with so much love. And, and such excellence. And so I feel like uh, the message is getting through that I am not a, uh, what was the word, uh, prima donna, you know. Mm, mm. And, and uh, 
and also the advice for some of the listeners is that uh, if there's only a certain kind of music that you like, be careful because that really closes doors. You know, um, some people says, you know, I mean, I don't play ballads. You know, if you want ballads, call somebody else. <laughs> and somebody, you know. and uh, other people would say, I play the way I feel it and the way I hear it. And if you want something else, call somebody else. They are not willing to experiment and try to please the people that are hiring you. And uh, all of those qualities uh, are not, they don't promote harmony amongst musicians or, or in our industry, you know. Sure. You are to, you know. You mentioned being a believer, a, a Christian. Uh, you have done some of your most prolific work with Bill Maxwell and and uh, Andre Crouch in particular. I think those two men. Uh, uh, Andre Crouch, you did work not only with Andre Crouch on his projects, but also on the Winans' early projects. And, and then uh, with Bill Maxwell, who was also on those projects, usually, mm. along with uh, you and Alex Acuna, Justo Almario, and Hadley Hawkinsmith. And there was a, there's sort of a core group of you guys that sort of played together. Did I miss some people? I know I miss some people. Harlan Rogers, uh yeah, Harlan Rogers. That's right. Harlan Rogers on keyboards. That's right. You know, uh, so you would and, and and occasionally you'd have some other folks in there like Dean Parks and some others. But but um, but also with with uh, Bill Maxwell, you had this group that you guys formed called Koinonia, which is a Greek term out of the Bible. I think it means fellowship. So so this has been your work between Koinonia and, and, and Andre Crouch and the Winans in particular, along with others like Kelly Willard and others, you have, you have really made a mark in gospel and Christian music. You've really helped to define and shape it, especially in the seventies and eight, well, not so much the seventies maybe, but more of the eighties and, and early nineties. What's most memorable about your gospel music work? In your Christian music work, uh, well, the the reality, um, you see, uh, I gave my I became born again in October eleventh of nineteen seventy seven, but uh, in Mexico I was a rhythm guitarist, a staff rhythm guitarist for Capitol Records from. 1966 on. So for two years, I was a staff guitarist at Capitol Records. And uh, so I was already functioning as a professional musician in the studios. And already I had developed this attitude of playing with my whole heart and with my whole love. When uh, When I came to the United States and I became born again, a big burden dropped from my shoulders because I realized that I it was not me to who was creative. It was not up to me to keep coming up with new ideas and, and be creative. But I just had to be a vessel available to share what the Lord was 
giving me to give to others, you know. And so suddenly, uh, when when that day came that I started to make music that came from that place, uh, there was a freedom beyond anything. And uh, and part of what happened is that uh, I made a mistake. <laughs> waking up one morning and I said, Lord, if you are real, prove it to me, which is something that I don't advise anybody to do. <laughs> uh, so later on that day, I was recording uh, at a place called Ocean Way, and out of nowhere, Bill Maxwell comes and says, hey, Abraham, come, let me introduce you to somebody. And he brings me to meet Andre Crouch for the first time. And Andre says, what are you doing tonight? And I says, nothing. He says, well, do you want to play with me? And I said, sure. So that night I met Harlan Rogers for the first time. Harlan wrote the charts on napkins. <laughs> <laughs> and we played uh, a, a special five songs because President Carter was coming to the hotel in downtown LA and they wanted Andre to, to play and sing. And so that moment, uh, was a pivotal moment in my life. I realized that I was able to play music that I had never heard or played before, and that uh, and that the people around me were pleased. So I knew that it was not me that was being creative, but that uh, you know, it's beautiful when you do what you are created to do. You know. Yes. Uh, as a believer, I would assume that you face some interesting scenarios because everybody in the music industry is not a person of faith. Right. Uh, everybody doesn't have the same worldview or value system. So how have you navigated that as a believer? Well, <laughs> it's been beautiful uh, and a little bit tense from time to time. But uh, let me tell you, it started like this. There was a musician who was considered the number one studio musician of all time in Los Angeles who had a tremendous amount of power. And uh, at some point, uh, when he became Christian, well, I'll tell you, the the Manson family had earmarked him to kill him. Oh wow! And so, some way somehow, he says that once he realized that he was going to be killed, he just as best as he could because he was drugged, got out, got in his car, and started to drive, crashing with cars on both sides of the street, and just drove and drove and drove until he could not go as far as he possibly could, and then he became member of many different cults and religions until finally he found Jesus. And he says to me, Abraham, uh, the Lord gave me a special discernment that I can hear at all times if the music is coming from the right spirit or not. And he told me to only, from that day on, you can only play Christian music and nothing else. He says, but you don't have that same calling. The Lord has not given you the same discernment. So what you need to do is you need to fall in love with the voice of the Lord. Listen to what he tells you and do what he tells you. Mm. Go everywhere. 
and tell the musicians that the Lord loves them. He says, I cannot do that because I can only play Christian music and nothing else. And that was very freeing because he could have said, he could have just as easily said, you have to do what I do. You know, mm -hmm. I used to be number one and you have to do what I say. Uh, he just says, no, man, fall in love with the Lord's voice. Seek him. Seek after him. And so that's what I did. So I started to arrive to the recording studios. In those days, I would open my Bible to in, in, in the music stands. And then when they would bring the music, they says, huh, the, the Bible, why do you have the Bible open? And then that would become a point of conversation, you know. Right. And uh, so through the years, many, many people have had conversations about the Lord with me. Uh, many have converted, you know. And, um, and so my life has had an impact for sure. But then when some people get offended or they say, you know, Abraham, I don't like this. I says, I'm sorry, I did not mean it at all uh, as an offense. Uh, if you prefer that I close the Bible, I'd be glad to do that. Or, And then in some extreme cases, the guy says to me, you know, Abraham, I did not know that you were a Christian and my behavior around you has been incredibly offensive. So because that's the way I am naturally, I decided not to hire you anymore, but I promise you, that if I have to hire you, I will treat you with the total respect and consideration. Mm -hmm. So that's that's how uh, my Christianity has affected my uh, my professional life. You know. Wow, wow, fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's yeah. You have. Uh, played in a lot of jazz settings, as we've discussed. Who would you say is the most notable jazz musician that you've played with, jazz artist that you've played with, or, or maybe there's a jazz project that you've played on that you would say is particularly notable? Well, you know, it's <laughs> these are difficult questions. I think that the one that is the most uh, impressive of all, uh, for obvious reasons, is always uh, Joe Sawinall. You know, he always yes. falls in the in the untouchable category because he really was. You know, um, weather report. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that was a very very special time that I got to spend playing with him sharing with him, watching him uh, show his his giftedness, you know. But then um, I can mention so many other people that I think are equally as gifted but not as notable. Uh, Victor Feldman was uh, an absolute uh, life-changing experience for me. Vibraphonist Victor Feldman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He also was an unbelievable pianist, you know, and uh, his compositions, his touch. Um, who else? Uh, you know, I have the highest respect, and I will always have the highest respect from, for Justo Almario. He's just a, a real master of jazz. Saxophonist, and, yes. And flute, man, dear Lord. 
<laughs> he knows the why of things. But then, you know, when Houston and I were students at Berkeley, he gave me my favorite quote. We would be walking around and listening to everybody practice. And everybody was practicing things that were very, very impressive, you know. And then Houston says to me, man, are you listening? Are you listening? And I said, yeah, it's incredible. I said, we are in a great school. He says, you know, and this is before we were believers. He says, you know, all I want is to learn to play one note with my whole heart. Mm. Mm. Woo! <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's, that has been a... Uh, something that uh, we are never going to stop trying to, to learn to do, you know. You are, you are now, uh, I believe, 73. Is that right? That's correct. Wow. Okay. okay. So uh, do, you, do you keep the same rigorous schedule as a studio musician there in Los Angeles that you used to? In the last uh, two years, no, because uh, in um, September of 16, uh, I contracted multiple myeloma, mm. and I had a stem cell replacement uh, therapy, mm -hmm. and thank God uh, I'm winning all the battles. The, the, the doctor says that uh, they caught it in the very early stages. And with all the new developments that are happening, I've been responding very, very well. But uh, uh, I had to start being very careful as to how active I would be, how many airplanes I would be allowed to be in. And at the time, also when the Zika virus appeared, the doctor says, you don't take any risks. You know, you don't want that in addition to all the your immune system needs time to recover and recuperate. And then came um, the pandemic, the pandemic. But uh, thank God people keep sending files from all over the world for me to overdub, and I stay active. Okay. So you pretty much work in your home studio. I'm working in my studio. Thank God Mateo is heaven sent. You know, he <laughs> gets a beautiful sound. Forward to being active again because coming together as musicians and with an audience is so important, you know? Yes. Yes. You get energy from being around really? other musicians and being in front of an audience. Right. And as much as I'm being blessed by you today, uh, as a performer with zoom and an audience is not, it's not complete. You know? Right. <laughs> I understand. Are, are there, you mentioned that you're, you're doing a lot of, uh, uh, studio work there at your home with people sending you tracks to play on. Uh, are there any interesting projects coming up that you're going to be participating in this way? Yes. Um, the There is a, comp a film composer named Michael Giacchino who has been using me now very much for the last 11, 12 years. You know, he wrote Ratatouille and he wrote In and Out and... Um, Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, all, all these different films, animations, and The Incredibles. And I have favor with him. So uh, he just finished uh, a new project as a result of the pandemic, which he calls uh, in the style of exotica music. And this time he decided to use 
both of my children and me as the foundation of this project. And uh, I'm very, very excited about that because the pandemic also has allowed uh, my older son, Abe Jr., to spend time writing music with the two of us. So the three of us now are beginning to put together a core of material that we are hoping that uh, it will become our first project. And uh, wow! And uh, and then Mateo, the way he dresses things and adds little sparks and things to the music, he really touched Michael Giacchino's heart. And Michael says, you know, I'm going to do an extra album with just your ideas, Mateo. You know, so uh, Mateo has favor. And then the the other thing that happened that we were not expecting is uh, because of the pandemic. The film, the film and TV composer named Michael Post, that yeah. wrote all the music for uh, One Order. He calls my son and says, "You know, I want to do a project of uh, blues, and I would like to have you and your father uh, play on it." And so we did. And then he says that as soon as he finishes orchestrating, he hopes that we can go and perform it live. You know, so beautiful. I'm very beautiful well i i feel that um i could probably ask you another hour's worth of questions but that wouldn't be fair to you or mateo who has set this up uh the zoom up for us uh i want to thank you abraham for spending this time with us today on jazz with kenny anderson and I also want to extend a special thank you to your wife, Lynn, who uh, is the one who really connected us. Uh, Lynn has an active Facebook account. And when I saw that, I thought, huh, maybe I can, maybe I can get an interview with Abraham by asking Lynn. And she was so gracious and you were gracious. And I want to thank you for that. Thank you so much. And I have to tell you, uh, these interviews are special because you are drawing things out of my heart. And uh, and I realize that it's always imperfect. There's a lot of people that I could and should mention that I'm not mentioning, but uh, the important thing is that uh, so many things, um, so many people do touch our hearts and shape us, you know, and uh, and even if, I'm, if I don't have them in, in mind all the time, it's important that people realize that, uh, especially if they're going to be musicians, that everything that happens today, every day, can and will become a song. You know. Mm. That you know what? That's a brilliant concept, and I get that. I get that. That life, that that music is one of the ways that we document how we live and how we feel, and that's that's brilliant. I like that. I like that. I think that's very true. That's very true. Abraham Laboriel, thank you, sir. Well, you're the very first person with the last name person that I've met, and I'm very, very happy. <laughs> Jazz with Kenny Anderson is a partnership with Jazz in the Park Huntsville and is produced by David Person for David Person Media, LLC. The theme music was written and produced by Kelvin Wooten. Damian Malone provides podcast platform management. We hope you'll join us for the next episode of Jazz with Kenny Anderson. The Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group is an award-winning team with hundreds of successful transactions under their belt. 
Through their national network, the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group works hard to help families realize the dream of home ownership. As a community advocate, Cynthia Joyner is proud to be the presenting sponsor of Jazz in the Park Huntsville. You can find the Cynthia Joyner Real Estate Group on the web at CynthiaJoyner.com.